we are here with uh, Stephanie Kuntz, who is an author, a historian. Um, she teaches at Evergreen State College um, and just an all around fascinating person. So thank you very much for being here with us. My pleasure. Um, so Stephanie, um, this is maybe a strange question to start out on, but, but why does it feel so hard to find a, a partner now? Well, I think it feels so hard because we have more choices about our partners and also because we've tremendously raised our standards about what we want in a partner. You know, I mean, if you go back thousands of years, of course, marriage was all, all about getting connected in-laws and, and the only way you could uh, get adult responsibility and your parents often arranged it. But even just go back to the 1960s, uh, when I would interview people about why they got married in the 60s, they would say things like, well, it just seemed to be time, that's all. Huh. Or, um, well, she, you know, she was, um, you know, she, she was the kind of person you'd want to settle down with, the guys would say. And the women would say, well, you know, he seemed like a steady provider. Um, so it was like the, the standards were pretty low and your options outside marriage were even lower. So um, nowadays we have tremendous options as single people. Um, and so the calculus is, gosh, I think most people, it's not true that marriage has lost uh, its, um, its cachet with people. In fact, I think it has more cachet, but it has more cachet as a relationship rather than as an institution, as something that is um, valued because it is so special because you don't have to enter it and because you only enter it if you think it can make your life better, not just economically or materially, but emotionally. So we have this desire to get married, to get into this relationship, many people do, but we also know that it could be a mistake <laughs> in comparison to what we could do with our own life. It could, we have the wonderful choice to leave a bad marriage, but it also makes us more aware that the marriage could not last. And so the, the searching for a partner becomes a much more complicated thing than it used to be. I guess what I'm um, confused by is that it seems like a lot of people still <laughs> want that companionship. They still want the, the end result of the marriage. Um, and even though they have a lot of choice, I think in theory, at least, they're dying to have that one person. So, so, so where, where is that disconnect where we kind of feel overwhelmed or just don't pick or... But we want particular things and we want to actually grow with that person. So we, it's not like you're just marrying someone and you're stuck there for the rest of life. Mm -hmm. um, that's one reason, for example, that even as divorce rates have fallen for people in the prime ages of, of their life, of raising children, um, they've doubled for people over 50 and tripled for people over 65. Because wow. people no longer just say, all right, now I've made this commitment to this institution with this person and I'm gonna stay in it for the rest of my life. People expect the relationship to grow and change in good ways for both partners. Mm -hmm. And they're not willing to put up with it if it doesn't. But that means they go into it with a lot more consciousness that it takes work, that it could fail, uh, that they have other options. And so you have that, what you said, consumer choice 
can be very confusing. I mean, when we actually know from studies that the more choices a, a person faces when they walk into a store, the less likely they are to actually buy anything because they get overwhelmed. And I think that happens with some of our choices about personal relationships today. Well, that's that's certainly fair. And, and I, I think that resonates with me that there's just so many things that you're looking for in one person um, that it's difficult to, to find all of you know, that unique blend um, that you're looking for in, in just one single human. And that might be part of the problem. You know, very often when we talk about this issue, social conservatives will say, well, our expectations of marriage are too high. If we would just lower our expectations. Well, I've studied low expectation marriages <laughs> of the past, and you do not want to go back to those. But there's one point there. It's not that our expectations of marriage are too high, but I think our expectations of other relationships um, with other individuals, with friendships, but also with our community as a whole are not high enough. Huh. And as a result, we tend to expect all satisfactions to be given to us by one person, which is unrealistic. So, so that's pretty fascinating. So, so when you say I mean, that we, we don't uh, have enough or high enough expectations of other people, you mean, I assume friends and family that uh, we don't lean on them enough. The best predictors of a healthy and happy uh, old age are not whether you are partnered or not. It's whether you have good social networks where you uh, are involved with other people and can count on them and they can count on you. And the friendships are even more important than family. And I think that's because you can get rid of the family members that are not, I mean, you can get rid of friends who are not supportive, but it's hard to get rid of family members who are not yeah. supportive. Um, and when we look at these, this kind of research on how important these social networks are to our sense of well-being, it even extends to little casual interactions that we have. Um, the person that you buy your coffee from in the morning or your newspaper from. And if you have good interactions with them, the well-being that comes from that extends more than a day, it extends throughout your week. And I think that to the extent that we lose those kind of social interactions, both the close social networks and the, the ones that one researcher calls consequential strangers, just people that we're not close to, but that we, we know we can say hello to every day and have a nice exchange with. Um, that's very, I think, um, destabilizing for our personal relationships because it puts so much of our good mood and our well-being dependent on our interactions with just that one person. I think that's really beautiful and insightful. Um, if you had to kind of choose three things um, that you felt like were, were uh, you know, more effective things to look for in a partner, do you have a sense for, for what you'd choose? <laughs> well, of course, uh, it varies by individual. Um, in, in the 19th century, when the new ideal of marriage for love really took, um, took hold, um, people were really worried that how would we get people married if, if they, and how will we keep them married if, if it's just all based on such a, you know, kind of fleeting thing as love. And one of the ways they dealt with it and that it also folded into changing um, economies where men were leaving the household and working outside the home and women were increasingly excluded from some of these economic and political roles. Uh, this new definition of love uh, developed as a union of opposites. Men and women were redefined as women were, you know, um, this 
the, emo the emotion keepers, the socially skilled people, men were the go-getters, the ambitious, the, um, the strong people. And love became, uh, marriage became a, the union between people. You couldn't get access to the skills and resources and emotions of that other person without marrying someone of the other uh, gender. And the result was a kind of strange erotic script. Women, we had to fall in love with men who could hurt us. They were stronger than us. We didn't understand them. We had to figure out what are they thinking. Uh, we, so we developed this notion of talking to other women about trying to figure out what hints and cues. Romance novels have all been about that. How do you attract a man who is dangerous and make him not be dangerous for you? From Jane Eyre to Fifty Shades of Grey, that's what they're all about. And men were told to be attracted. Uh, the, the definition of love was to provide things, uh, to protect women, to provide for them materially, and to teach them. I'm really actually more tolerant of mansplaining than many of my feminist friends because that's what men have been told for a hundred years is, is the way they express love, you know? <laughs> now, this is not working for us anymore, and we have to readjust. And I would say that it's so important for us to really rethink what is erotic. And critical in that is mutual respect and friendship. I mean, that's, that's the most critical element today. I mean, yes, you know, it's nice to find your partner sexy <laughs> and there are ways to work at finding your partner sexy and keeping them sexy. Um, but it's extremely important to have that mutual respect that was lacking in the old marriage script. The old marriage script was you looked up to your husband, um, you thought that he was kind of a dork about certain things around the house, but, <laughs> you know, he was good at the other stuff, and he, you know, thought that you were kind of a scatterbrain, but you were just so cute, <laughs> and nowadays that just doesn't cut it, so we've got to adjust our scripts. It seems like marriage has kind of undergone all of these drastic changes in, in the last hundred years in terms of what we expect in terms of our roles in, in the marriage um, and how we relate to one another and what we should look for. Um, do, do you feel like marriage is something um, that, you know, what, what would it look like in, in, in 500 years or in a hundred years or in a thousand years or what, what do you think? Well, that's oh, historians hate to be asked questions because <laughs> a lot depends on the choices we make now. I think we need to think of marriage um, as a as a joint project of figuring out what works to remain friends, to remain sexual partners, but also to cultivate our interests and our growth outside the marriage. How do you do both? We don't know. We're entering uncharted territory. Yeah. We're not doing marriage worse than people have done before. We're trying to do something totally different than people have done before. And I think that it would be helpful if we stopped looking for gurus to give us the answers and just said to each other, same-sex or heterosexual couples, how do we work this now that all of these rules of gender and um, what marriage is about have changed, it's going to be a real project and it could be an exciting project for us to figure out how to do this. And the project, or at least the mission of the project, it seems like should be how to cultivate relationships and, and um, interests beyond a marriage. Is that? 
I think that's absolutely essential, you know, and the, the balance line is uh, people, people talk about it with intersecting circles. If you both are here <laughs> and you don't have any circles and interests that overlap, that's not going to work. Sure. But if you're like this, you're probably going to smother each other. Um, and so that idea of finding the areas in which you have these commonalities and want to increase these commonalities and these common friends and these common interests, and then these other areas and interests that you can bring back to the common ones and enrich them. Um, one of the things I'm fond of talking about is how bad this date night advice is. <laughs> what we know from research is that people are far more uh, excited about their relationship when they spend time socializing with other adults, not wow. just with their, with, their, uh, cup, with their partner. And they've done experiments where they send people out on a, on a date just with each other and tell them to talk about intimate things and new things. And they all, then they send other people out on a double date with two people they don't know and ask them to explore new things. And the people who've been out with the people they don't know come back much more happy with their own partner. Wow. Once. <laughs> and that's, and so I think that's an extremely important part of, of building relationships is finding ways to explore new things, not that take you away from the relationship, but that actually bring you back stronger with new input so that you're not just doing the same old things. That's very uh, counter to what, you know, most people tell you, but I, I think that's, um, it, it makes a lot of sense because if you just look at the same person that you, you know, that you spend day in, day out with, there's not a whole lot of newness and you're not kind of, as you say, growing together. Right, right. And they've also done studies that show that when you do things that are challenging, not just comforting, that is one of the things that really uh, leads to greater bonds. So sitting down and watching the same TV show may be fine, you know, um, for, for times in your life when you just need to, to unwind, but go, doing something that neither of you has done before uh, that's going to be hard is actually probably more exciting for the relationship. Well, thank you. I, I think this has left uh, me a lot to think about and, and uh, with a lot of things to, to kind of do. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Stephanie. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. Mm -hmm.